0: series and after that i think we're planning to start a book in second peter but that's tentative for now we'll let you know uh, as we as we near closer to that but we're going to continue our summer gospel nuggets today by looking at a passage from matthew chapter 25 verses 1 to 13. we're going to call the message today the tragedy of delay the tragedy of delay sometimes in a pastor you get messages that you really look forward to. You know, there's passages that you just know are gonna encourage and build one another up. And then there's passages that are a little trickier, although still good and still helpful for the church, a little bit trickier because they deal with things that are severe and things that are permanent and eternal. And that's what we're gonna look at today. Is my mic on by the way? Are people hearing me? No? No? Should we restart that? It's not on? I could use the uh, podium mic if need be, it's okay. All right, are we alive? Nope, test. So two guys walk into a bar. You can't do that. I can't do that. It's not working? It's unmuted. Okay. How about the podium mic? We'll roll with the podium mic today. It's just one of those days. Okay. One of these are going to work. Otherwise, I'm going to shout all day, and I'm going to look angry. And I'm not angry. Is this one on? No, we are dead today, guys. Who wants an extra loud Pastor Todd today? Let's try one more time. I want to step back there. Want to step back there? Well, I know what no. You want me to look back there? Hey, we're we're informal here, right? Want me to stop back there and look? I mean, it's unmuted. I don't know. It's unmuted. unmuted. I'm on, so I've done everything I can. <laughs> we're gonna roll. With, it's on now. Test. Now it's unmuted. Which one? The white one. Okay, I'm not on still. All right. You know what? Never mind. Look for. If you guys listen to the sermon online, that's gonna be awesome. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to reboot a little bit here. We're going to go without it. So can anyone hear me? everybody hear me well enough? Okay. If I shout, if I raise my voice, I'm not angry. I'm just trying to send the message across today. <laughs> Let's start with this question today. Did you ever not heed a warning or a warning label? A warning label's all around us, right? If you look under your sink, generally that's where we keep the scary things with the warning labels. You know, those, when we have six kids, we have to sort of lock that area. We have to MacGyver it so they can't go in there and uh, find some scary things and drink something they shouldn't. But there are warning labels on several things. I'm going to share a little bit of a story. I may have shared this before. I'm not sure. When I was in my uh, mid-20s, I worked at a bank here in Dunmore, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was one of those banks that you did the same thing every single day over and over. And there were really busy periods, and and then there were really down periods. Okay? And some of those really down periods, we had to sort of find ways to fill the time. I don't remember whose idea it was, but someone came up with the idea that we should do a hot pepper challenge. A hot pepper challenge, and the idea, as wouldn't surprise you, behind, behind a hot pepper challenge is you try to see who can eat the hottest pepper. And we actually had standings. We actually had things that we were keeping track of who could eat the hottest pepper. I was lagging behind because I was kind of a wuss, and I wasn't I wasn't ready to you know hurt myself for the sake of winning this thing. But I noticed you know. As a young 20-something foolish guy, uh, I didn't want to really fall behind the standings. So at one point, they brought in these peppers called habanero peppers. Did you ever? If you may have had a habanero pepper in something, okay? It may have been in a sauce or maybe a fraction of the pepper inside of some cheeseburger you're eating or whatever. But they brought in these habanero peppers, and they were full peppers, okay? And in order for me to sort of catch up with everybody else, uh, it was said that I was going to have to eat one entire habanero pepper. Uh, I don't know what it, where it stands right now, but we looked it up. It was the second second hottest pepper in the world at the time. If you read the label on the little packaging there, it says pepper, extremely hot. And it gives you a couple things not to do. Don't touch it and then touch your eyes. And it actually said, do not eat it in its entirety. You idiot. It didn't say that part. <laughs> but I, it should have. Um, but I decided, you know, I, how bad can it be? I mean, anytime you say something like that, right, you're going to find out. So I took this entire pepper and I shoved it in my mouth. I chewed it and I swallowed it. And honestly, for the first 10-15 seconds, I felt fine. In fact, I kind of laughed at the pepper going, that's it? That's all you got, habanero? I could do that again. And then about 15 seconds went by and I, there's no way to explain this except it was an out-of-body experience. I, I, the pain is not even the word I would use. Uh, I felt lightheaded. I was in the worst severe pain in my mouth I've ever felt. I didn't even know that could happen. I, I was I was pacing back and forth. I thought I was going to pass out. I was lightheaded. All kinds of bad things started happening to me, and I realized right then I should have listened to that warning label. That warning label was there for my benefit, and I, had to take, I didn't take it as that. So, so I think I won something that day, but uh, I think I won the Idiot of the Year award instead of... <laughs> Instead of climbing the standings and winning some machismo award, which whatever I was going for, I don't know. But sometimes you have to listen to warning labels. In fact, always listen to warning labels, right? They're all around us, and they're there for our benefit. Well, today we kind of have that, okay? We're not hopefully going to spin it in a positive way, but it's, it, it's a warning label, and I don't know how else to get around it. It's just one of those passages we just need to listen to and heed, and it comes from Matthew chapter 25. And like I said before, we're going to call this the tragedy of delay. And hopefully that's not how we end But I sort of have to keep the weight of this lesson for us to get an understanding of where Jesus is coming from. And he's going to tell us a story today. Jesus is going to tell us a story. He often did this. Jesus was a great storyteller. He used these things called parables to tell stories. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at one of his famous parables. And we're going to look at what it means. And then we're going to look at what do we do based on what it means. So follow me there in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. This parable is about the second coming of Jesus. Okay, it's also going to be on the screen. So follow along as we read it. Listen to the word of God. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray and let's give God um, the glory for this. Let's ask for his help today. Father, help us today as we look into this. We want to understand what this is saying to us today. We want to be spurred on, Father, to either be further prepared to meet Jesus, or for the first time maybe, come to an understanding of what it means to be prepared. I just pray that you'd bless this sermon, give myself the help, open the hearts and the souls of those who are here, and bring all glory unto yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, we have one goal today with this story, one goal with this lesson. Sometimes I give you several goals. We have one goal today, okay? Our goal is this, to be prepared, to be ready, and to be watchful for Christ's return at all times. That's our one goal today. If we can make that happen, then we're doing good. As most of you know, Jesus Christ has come to this earth already, hasn't he? It's something we celebrate at Christmas time. It's called the First Advent. Jesus came to this earth, and he came to this earth as a babe. We know the story, right? He came to a virgin. He was born as a babe. He was born as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He lived entirely for God's will. He gave up his life, was crucified, he rose again, and then he ascended back to heaven to take his rightful throne, But we know from Scripture that that's not the only time Jesus is coming to this earth. He's going to come again. He's going to come a second time. But the second time is going to look very different than the first time. The first time he came as a babe, some people missed it, some people understood it. And the second time is going to be very different. He's going to come back as the Son of God. He's going to come back in his glory. And he's going to come back and nobody's going to miss it. Not when he comes back. So we need to understand that this passage today is talking about his second coming, the coming that hasn't happened yet. We are between the two comings, okay? The first one has happened. We can look back on it. The second one, we have to look forward to it. And that's really what this story is about. I have another question for you today. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? It's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about that. Where were you on 9-11? That's one of those things, one of those events in our life that we remember where we were. I wasn't around for the Kennedy assassination or the moon landing, but those are also times in your life that I've heard people remember where they were when that happened. But 9-11 was one of those things that people remember where they were during 9-11. I have a little bit of a story from my 9-11 experience. I was in college here at Clark Summit University, and I was walking to chapel. And on the way to chapel, in the sort of the snack shack area, they had a TV, one of those little TVs mounted on the wall. And as I sort of started to walk into chapel, I noticed that there was something happening on the TV that people were sort of gathered around watching. And I really had no idea what was happening. I'd only paid attention enough to see that a building had been on fire. And there were a couple reports saying that a plane hit it at the time. Nobody really knew what kind of plane had hit it, so there was speculation that it was a tiny plane just got off course, struck a building. I didn't even hang around long enough to understand what building it was because the shot was kind of tight. They were focused in on the fire. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. I kind of looked and paused for a moment and said, oh, that's sad. And then I kind of walked into chapel. Well, chapel began. And as chapel, we went through the chapel you know, uh, thing there. Our president of the university came in and interrupted the service. And he said, I have something to report. And it's hard to report. But he said, I have to tell you that both World Trade Centers in New York City were struck by airplanes. And then he paused. And then he said, and both have collapsed. And being two hours from New York City, I knew what the World Trade Center was. I'd actually been to New York City. I had actually been to the top of the World Trade Center. Anyone else ever been to the top of that? And uh, when he said the word "collapsed," I didn't understand what he meant by that. I didn't. It couldn't process in my mind that the buildings had fallen down. I was thinking in my mind, man, part of it fell off. Part of the building fell off. It was sort of surreal to think about. But as you know, as you watched the day events unfold after that, and They completely changed the schedule of our day that day, and people were watching it and talking about it, of course. And I remember that day because I remember thinking, wow, what a grave and tragic situation this actually was. And we found out the numbers after everything was all told, about 3,000 people died that day. Tragic. 3,000 people died on 9-11. It was one of the biggest things, if not the biggest thing, that ever happened on American soil, right? Maybe even bigger than um, Pearl Harbor. But it was so tragic and so big that people remember where you were. And I'm sure if I asked questions, I've asked you those questions, you guys would remember where you were as well. But New York City has an estimated 8.6 million people living in it. Okay? 8.6 million people about to live in New York City. And on that tragic day, about 3,000 of them lost their lives. It's tragic. And I don't want to nullify the fact of how tragic this event was, but 3,000 people. Uh, divided out into 8.6 million people is 0.03% of New Yorkers died that day. And that was tragic, wasn't it? That's a tragic thing to think about. The anniversary of that is coming up on us again. And it's such a tragic event, we remember it. But in this story we have today, and I don't know how exact the numbers are supposed to be, but in our story today, 50% of people who think they're Christians aren't prepared to meet Jesus. And that has to hit us today, because this event that happened on 9-11, regardless of how close and how directly impacted you were, it, it impacted you. You thought about it. You spent time thinking and talking about it and praying for that those people. But in our story today, 50% of the people who think they're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ are disillusioned and they're not ready. And using 9-11, I want you to consider these questions today. If you knew about the attacks that were gonna happen on 9-11, if you knew about them on September 10th, you knew it was gonna happen. You had some inside information from somebody really trusted that two planes were gonna hit the World Trade Center and lots of people were gonna die. Do you think you'd tell anybody? Do you think you'd mention that to anybody? Do you think you'd tell the news? Do you think you'd try to tell anyone you possibly could who may be affected by that to get out? Don't be around when that happens. It's coming, and I don't want you there. Do you think you'd tell anybody? Do you think you'd visit New York City or the World Trade Center that day on 9-11? Do you think you'd go up the towers that day and try to get to the observation deck that day? Not a chance, right? Not a chance you'd do it on 9-11. If you lived in New York City, do you think you would try to get out on September 10th if you knew about the attacks on September 11th? These are obvious questions, right? Obviously, you would. You would try to get out the day before so you weren't affected at all by the attacks on 9-11. Do you think you'd warn anyone else about the attacks? Maybe if you knew someone who was in the towers or was near the towers, do you think you'd tell them if you love them? Absolutely. And here's the last question. Do you think if you tried to warn anyone about the attacks on September 11th and you tried to warn them on September 10th, do you think there'd be anyone who wouldn't listen to you? Do you think there's anyone that wouldn't take that serious? Do you think there's anyone that wouldn't go, Ah! guy's out of his mind. It's not going to happen. It's never happened before. Why would it happen tomorrow? Do you think there's anyone who would come to that conclusion and would still get up on 9-11 and go to the towers and go to work anyways? I think you're agreeing with that, and I would agree with that as well. Well, here's the message today. The message we have today, unfortunately, I'm not naive enough to think that everyone who hears this message today is going to receive it. In fact, I'm going to say it this way. I don't think the message we have today is going to be received by all of us. I wish it would. I wish that every single one of us would take this message today and would listen to it and learn from it and prepare because of it. But I don't think everyone is. And I want you to consider that today because I want you to consider your own soul. And I want you to think today, even before we get into it, what am I going to do with a message that is given to us today? There's a few reasons why I say this message won't be received by us today. I'm going to give you a few of these. Here's reason number one I say this message is not going to be received by all of us. Number one is we have fake disciples amongst us. We do. And I'm not naive enough to think that we don't anymore because I was that person. I was the poster boy for faking Christianity for the bulk of my life. I had grown up in it. I had learned a lot of things. I had a, a lot of biblical knowledge. And I faked it. I knew what to wear. I knew what to say. I knew how to dress. I knew some biblical passages. I could trick you. And I had all my friends fooled. I had my parents fooled. I had my siblings fooled. I had myself fooled. But I didn't have God fooled. And fake disciples are amongst us, sadly. And they might even be here. They might even be amongst us. They might even be sitting in the chairs today saying, yes, I'm a Christian. But they don't have the evidence to show that. And fake disciples have a propensity to not listen to spiritual warnings. They'll hear the spiritual warning, just like I heard the warning about the pepper. And they don't listen to it. They don't heed it and they go right on on with their lives as if nothing ever happened. So that's reason number one why I don't think this message is going to be received by all of us today. Number two reason is our culture has a wrong understanding of the gospel and our need for Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that about our culture? Our culture has a wrong understanding of our need for Christ. A lot of people consider Jesus just to be like a sweetener you put in your coffee, just to make it a little bit better. My life is already good, my life is already pretty sweet, If I add a little bit of Christ, a little bit of Jesus, it gets just a little bit better. Is that what the gospel says? The gospel uses words like wretched, dead in your sins, hopeless, without Christ. But our culture likes to think that Jesus is just sort of something to sweeten your life a little bit more. So a lot of us don't have an understanding of our need for Christ. And that's a sad thing. Hopefully we do here at Wyoming Valley Church. We have labored, hopefully, to make that happen. Number three reason why I don't think this is going to be received by all of us, is we have a wrong understanding of why we're here. Why we're here on earth. And you know that's the age-old question, that's what scholars are trying to figure out, is why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Why do we exist? That's the age-old question. Lots of people are trying to figure that out. And you know what? The Bible has the answers. You know why we're here? For God. We're here for God for God's glory, for God's will. And we know that because when Jesus taught us how to pray, one of the first things he taught us, he said, when you pray, say this, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Didn't he teach us that? And didn't Jesus' lifestyle teach us that as well? Did Jesus come down and do whatever Jesus wanted to do? No, he didn't. He did the will of the Father. Even Jesus submitted to the will of God. So we have a wrong understanding of why we're here. Number four, we think time is in abundance. We have lots of time, right? I don't know why we've been disillusioned by this, but we think that life is long. Time is long. We have this saying, there's always tomorrow, right? There's always tomorrow. If I don't get something done today, there's always tomorrow. Is there always tomorrow, everybody? The people on 9-11, was there always tomorrow? No, there wasn't tomorrow. But we like to consider that time is in abundance. If there's something we don't get to today, we can get to it later on. And I told myself that a lot. Someday I'm going to have to buckle down and really do this Christianity thing. But there's always tomorrow. We don't know that. James has taught us that our life is like a vapor. You guys ever seen your breath on a cold morning? And it's there for a moment, then and it passes. That's what the Apostle James says our life is like. It's there for a moment, you could see it, and then it vanishes. So time is not in abundance. Here's number five. We think earth can be heaven if we manage it correctly. We have people who call themselves Christians who write books called Your Best Life Now. That if you manage life correctly here upon earth, this can actually be your heaven. We have a wrong understanding of why we're here. Number six. We we believe we're going the speed of traffic, and nothing seems wrong with that. And I don't mean physical traffic. I mean we're going the pace of Christianity. A lot of other people are going. Okay, I I look like a lot of other people in the Christian life. I look like them, and they look like me. You know, we kind of all look like each other. We're going the speed of traffic, and nothing seems wrong with that. And so we don't take warnings seriously because other people aren't taking them seriously, and I'm going like everybody else is going. That's another reason. Here's another one. We're too busy with earthly matters to consider that every single one of them are going to cease one day. If it's earthly, it's temporal. That's just the obvious truth about earth. If it's earthly only, it's here for a time and then it's going away. Work. Birthday parties. Yard work errands hobbies whatever you want to put in there if it's earthly in nature it's temporary but sometimes we're so ensconced in the things of earth we can't think about the things of heaven we don't have time we're crazy busy i have so much to do today i have that ball game i gotta watch and then i gotta get in the yard and i gotta do this and this and this and this and sorry lord i just forgot but earthly matters are going to pass away and the lord has taught us that time and time again here's number eight we want to have our cake and we want to eat it too. You guys have heard that old adage, right? You want to have your cake. I want to have cake and I want to eat it. Well, you can't do both. If you eat the cake, it's gone. (laughs) But we want to have our cake and eat it too. We think that if we manage it correctly, again, we can have earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. We can be rich now and rich later. But the scriptures don't teach us that. The scriptures say, listen, if you follow Christ, you're going to be like Christ. And Christ was not rich on earth. He was poor on earth. He suffered on earth, he was lonely on earth, and so were his apostles. So we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want a little bit of religion, just to make ourselves, our conscience be okay, and we want to have a whole lot of fun here on earth. And the last reason I don't think everyone will take this series today is we don't love Jesus as much as we claim to love Jesus. And I'm not speaking of anybody here, specifically. I'm speaking only of what I've seen in my own heart and many around me. As we claim, we talk a big game, but we don't love Jesus as much as we claim to or we sing about. When we sing songs like I Surrender All and things like that, and then Jesus gets a fraction of our lives. So based on those reasons, I don't think this message will be, re- will be received by every single person today. But you don't have to be the person that turns it off today. You can listen. You can heed the warning today, and I hope and I pray that you do. Will you be amongst those who heed the warning we have for you today? I want to talk now about the details of the parable. I want us to understand what Jesus is saying, okay? And I'm I'm going to take the verses along with us, and we're going to explain it as we go so we understand what the parable is representing. If we don't understand what the parable represents, we can't make sense of the truth of it, okay? So the first thing he says in verse 1 is, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, Who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. That's how he sets the stage for this parable. The kingdom of heaven, again, it's referencing something, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Right away, we can tell that this is a metaphor. This story is a metaphor for the kingdom of God and being ready for it. Okay, if we look at this too literally today, we're going to get lost. We have to understand that Jesus is representing something. And in order to do that, He's going to use a story that didn't happen, but it's a story of something that kind of will happen. Referencing this metaphor of being ready for the kingdom of God. So that's what we're dealing with here today. We have a metaphor, a story that's representing something that's actually going to take place. But we can't look at the story too literally or we'll get lost, okay? So the first thing we need to understand is the word virgin. It says there's ten virgins in this passage. And this word virgin symbolizes ten souls who profess to follow Jesus. That's what the word virgin is meaning in this passage, okay? It's someone who professes to follow Jesus Christ. The word virgin is used, I believe, because virgin represents purity. It represents chastity. It represents innocence. And all those who follow Christ, that could be said about those people. They're pure. They're chaste. They're innocent. That's why he uses the word virgin. It's representing something. So again, don't take the word virgin too literally or you're going to get lost here. So in this passage, the ten virgins symbolize ten souls who profess to follow Jesus. They claim they've been purified by his cleansing blood, and they're awaiting his return. Okay, so all ten, that would be said about. We are virgins, we are waiting for the second coming of our bridegroom. The bridegroom is mentioned here, they're waiting to meet for the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's how we know we're talking about the second coming of Christ. The bridegroom, and it's not just in this passage, it's in several passages, says the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, and right now the church, us, people of God, are betrothed to Jesus. That's not a word we use a lot either. But the word betrothal, even if you look back in the ancient days, in the Bible days, was this term that kind of we would use for engagement, You guys are engaged right now. You're getting ready for your wedding. but Betrothal was different than engagement. Engagement can be broken off just by, we don't want to do this any longer. But if you were betrothed back in the day, you were already committed. The ceremony of the wedding feast hadn't taken place yet. But you were committed, and we know that because in the days of Joseph and Mary, when they were going to have Jesus, as soon as Joseph finds out his wife is pregnant, he believes she's been unfaithful to him. And he seeks to divorce her quietly. But they weren't quite married yet. They were only betrothed. But they were committed to one another. And they had to break that commitment through divorce, a certificate of divorce, because that's how committed they were. So we are in this betrothal period with our Lord Jesus where we are still waiting for the marriage ceremony. That has not taken place yet. But we are committed to one another, aren't we? He's committed to us, and we have claimed we are committed to him. I'm with him, he's with me. We just sang about it. That's what we're talking about here with the church. So the church is waiting, anticipating this coming ceremony with their bridegroom. And it will start when the bridegroom comes back. As soon as he comes back, we're going to enter in with him. That ceremony is going to begin and we are right now waiting for, but not just waiting, preparing ourselves to meet him. Just like every bride knows what that is like. You will know that, Melissa, what it's like on the day to be prepared to have your ceremony, to get all the dress ready, everything ready, everything the way you want it to look like, so that you can be ready for your bridegroom. That's where the church is right now. We are waiting for our bridegroom. He he hasn't come, and so we are preparing ourselves. And both Jesus and his church are waiting and anticipating this coming ceremony. So we, the church, we, the people of God, are now in the process of beautifying ourselves. And again, don't think too literally. This isn't outward we're talking about. This is about soul beautification, holiness, obedience, love for the Lord. We are in the process of making ourselves presentable to the bridegroom whenever he comes, so that when he comes back, he gets a bride that he deserves. What kind of bride does our Lord Jesus deserve? Doesn't he deserve someone who's prepared? who loves him, who's devoted to him, who's thought a lot about him, who has waited for and looked for his second coming. Isn't that what Christ is deserving of? That's where the church is right now. In fact, earthly marriage that we have on earth is a representation of eternal marriage with Christ. I would even say that earthly marriage right now is a shadow and the marriage with Christ is the reality. So as much as we love marriage, and marriage is a really good thing, it's representing something greater our union with our Lord Jesus. And when that takes place, we are going to be together forever. No more sin, no more darkness, no more struggle. We're always together for the rest of time. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Aren't you looking forward to that when you can get off this ride? (laughs) A lot of times I'm living upon this earth going, man, I want to get off this ride. (laughs) It's getting bad. It's getting, it's making me nauseous. Let's go to the next verse. It says, verses two to four, five of them were foolish, meaning the virgins. And five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. That's what verses 2 to 4 says. So each of the ten virgins in this parable have lamps. All ten of them have a lamp, okay? And the lamp signifies access to the light of Christ, okay? We live in a day where we have Bibles all around us. We have churches all around us. All you got to do is go to the next block, the next town, and you'll see a church. They're all around us. Pastors all around us. Good Christian books all around us. These ten virgins had access to the light of Christ. They had an understanding. They had an ability to listen, to learn, to understand the things of God and to walk in it. That's what the lamp is signifying, that they have access to truth. And they can navigate through the dark world if they have that truth. That's what the lamp is representing. We're going to talk about the oil here in a minute. It says five of the virgins are wise and they have secured flasks of oil for their lamps so they will have what is needed to light their lamp whenever the bridegroom comes. Because well, guess what? He might come at night. And if the bridegroom comes at night, I'm going to have to have this lamp of mine lit. Now here in the day and age, if we want something lit, we plug it in and we put batteries in it, right? But it's not going to shock you to know back in the day they didn't have that power that we have, right? So they had to have something to light their torch, light their lamp with. They had to have oil. Oil was pretty important if you had a lamp. If you had a lamp without oil, it's kind of useless. So these wise virgins have flasks of oil because they think, listen, I have a lamp and the bridegroom might come at night and I need something to light that lamp with. Hence the oil. But five virgins are foolish and they have no oil for their lamps. Or they just have enough to look like they're Christians. They have just enough oil to look like like they have their act together. But they don't actually have the oil needed to light their lamp in order to do what's necessary when it's time. So, they have enough oil to look like they have their act together. It's for appearance's sake. And this oil is representing the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's what the oil is signifying. It's signifying true grace that comes from God through faith in Jesus. Five of, the wise, five of the virgins are wise and have that. Five of the others haven't considered it beyond just looking religious, looking like they're amongst other Christians, going the speed of traffic. And sadly, 50% have the oil and 50% do not. And I think this oil signifies the grace of God and faith in Jesus, and it's given to those who truly desire to follow Christ and obey him. The oil is only given to those who truly want to follow Jesus. Otherwise, the oil would be wasted. And God gives that oil to anyone, anyone who truly wants to follow Jesus. In Ephesians 2 and Titus 2, we find this exact thing. So the oil is pretty important, isn't it? If you have a lamp, isn't oil pretty important? Because again, what if he comes at night? Let's go to verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Okay? The bridegroom is delayed, and all the ten virgins get drowsy and slept. Ever get drowsy through something important? Don't you dare say one of my sermons. (laughs) Don't you dare. I can go long on this. Ever get drowsy through something important? School, church, whatever. Yes, we have, right, haven't we? All of us have. I, I mentioned chapel at the beginning. I used to doze off all the time during chapel. It's shameful, but I did. All the ten virgins fall asleep in this parable. And what does that mean? See, the bridegroom is delayed in coming. I said at the beginning, we have a wrong concept of time. We think time is in abundance. And so we believe that Jesus is going to come back in our sort of perspective of time. And sometimes he doesn't. He makes us wait a little longer. He's a little bit delayed in his coming, at least in our perspective. And so every single virgin falls asleep in this story. And that's not a good thing. That's not saying, ah, whatever, they all fall asleep. No, that's not a good thing. But I think falling asleep represents something different than not having oil, okay? I think falling asleep represents the lack of complete alertness, the lack of complete readiness by Christ's people at all times. Now, if I polled the audience and said, are you always ready at every second of the day for Christ to return? Most of us would claim, no, not every second of the day. Am I prepared to meet Jesus? That's kind of what the falling asleep is representing. But it's not representing the lack of practical discipline. It's not representing the lack of practical readiness and practical obedience that it takes to be a true follower of Jesus, because that is laced through Scripture. If you are a true Christian, you will have discipline. If you are a true Christian, you will have readiness. If you are a true Christian, you will be obeying the Lord. And if you don't have that, now we're talking about the lack of oil. But none of us are perfectly always alert, are we? None of us, myself included. I'm not always perfectly alert. But true Christians do have the proof of life and proof proof of faith and devotion to Jesus. We do. We must. Otherwise, we don't have real faith in Jesus. Verse 6, this is what it says. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. See, the bridegroom came at midnight. Do you see the importance of the lamp? He came at midnight. It's dark at midnight. I'm teaching you profound truths here. It's important to have a lamp at midnight if you need to go somewhere. Headlights are important if you're driving your car at the night, right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. So the bridegroom comes and there's a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And it's midnight signifying what Scripture says about all the time about Jesus' second coming. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Not a literal night, okay? So don't think too literally on this passage. But he's going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come, this says in Matthew chapter 24, the passage right before ours, I don't have time to look at it, but Matthew 24, 36 to 51, Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night. Why? Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus come like a thief in the night? Why is anyone godly compared to a thief? Now, Jesus is not like a thief in the sense that thieves are evil and doing evil things, okay? That's not comparing Jesus to that. It's comparing him to the way a thief comes. Thieves come when they want to catch people unprepared. Janine and I were broken into twice in Michigan, and both times the robbers, the thieves knew we were gone. The first time it was Thanksgiving and we were celebrating at our parents' home and all our lights were off and they broke in and grabbed some stuff. The second time we were on vacation and guess what? All the lights were out and they broke in and grabbed some other stuff. And that's kind of what thieves do. They come like a thief in the night and Jesus says, listen, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Why? Because here's this tension in scripture. Jesus wants everyone saved. Did you know that? We're going to look at a passage here if we have time, 2 Peter 3, that says that. He doesn't desire that any perish. Jesus doesn't want anyone to die. He wants everyone saved. But, here's the tension. He comes like a thief in the night to catch the unprepared unprepared. Because he doesn't want people at the last second to be able to slip into the kingdom of God who have no love for him. Who have no devotion towards him. Because that would happen, right? If the bridegroom came and there was a scampering together and everybody got oil and everybody lit their lamp and everybody got into the kingdom of God, we'd have a lot of people in the kingdom of God who really don't love Jesus. But Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. He wants to catch the unprepared unprepared. And if you're prepared, you're fine. That's the symbol that we're talking about here today. We're all following Jesus. But if you're not prepared, that's what we need to take the warning here today. So the nighttime signifies the absolute necessity to have a lit lamp. Not just a lamp, but a lit lamp, in order to navigate our way to the bridegroom. Because a lamp without light is similar to religion without devotion. Do you think that happens today? Do you think there are people who are religious but not devoted to the Lord? Oh, it's there. Oh, it's present. 75% of our world, our country, claims to be Christians. Do we have a 75% Christian nation, do you think? Do you think there's some people in this world that have religion but no devotion? That's what we're talking about here today. You can't just have the lamp. You can't just have access to the truth. You need to be walking in that truth. So the bridegroom comes with a cry. It's impossible to miss. Okay, If you weren't in New York City during 9-11, you could miss it. You may not have known about it until later in the day. Maybe you went to work, maybe you went to school, and later on you found that something happened. And Christ's first coming was missed by lots of people, right? He came in a manger, he came to shepherds, the shepherds knew about it. A few other people knew about it, but a lot of people missed that. Not the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, no one's going to miss it. Everyone will hear this cry. Everyone will know he's here. Because that's how he wants it to be. It's going to come dramatically, unlike the first coming. Now, now we have a problem, okay? Verses 7 to 9 represents this problem. It says, when the bridegroom comes and the shout is made, all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. This is where the story takes a sad turn. The five wise virgins have oil for their lamps. So they trim their lamps, they light their lamps in order to meet the bridegroom. The true Christians, the wise virgins, have proof of faith, love, and devotion. So when Jesus comes back, they're known to be his. They go with Jesus. They're captured with Jesus. They go with him. He goes with them for the rest of eternity. But the five foolish virgins, like I said before, have no oil for their lamps. They only had enough to look religious. They don't actually have faith. They don't actually have love for Jesus. They aren't actually devoted to Jesus. And now they're scrambling in order to find some oil. So they asked the five wise virgins for some oil. Hey, can you share some of that oil with us? But as we know by looking into Scripture, we can't share faith. I could share my testimony, but I can't actually share my faith, can I? I can't actually put that into two and give you a little bit of my faith. No, you have to have your own. Same with obedience. You gotta have your own. Same with devotion. You gotta have your own. And that's kind of what happens in the parable. Give us some of your oil. And the wise virgin's like, no, it's impossible. If we give you oil, we don't have any oil. This isn't shareable. But they don't hate the foolish virgin, so they give them this last second advice. Go to the the dealers and try to buy some. And I think that signifies, try to repent. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God and hope it works. Do whatever you have to right now to get your heart in line with Christ. Because they do care about them, but they can't share faith and obedience and devotion. They just can't share it. It's not charitable. So although the wise virgins cannot give the foolish virgins any oil, they do give them last-second advice because they're loving. And that's interesting. But the foolish virgins have no proof of faith, have no proof of love, and have no proof of devotion. They have no oil. And that's problematic because the bridegroom is here. Jesus is now here. Verse 10 while they were going to buy, so they, they listened to the advice, they tried to do whatever they need to to get oil. While, the, while they're going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. I want you to picture that. The wise virgins go with Jesus into the kingdom of God, into the marriage feast, and the door is shut while the five foolish virgins are scrambling around in order to find some semblance of faith and godliness and all these things that are necessary for entrance, the bridegroom comes, and they're left out. And I think for the first time, the five foolish virgins would have thought, this is real. This is real. Remember when 9-11 happened? All of us said from that day on, oh, this can happen. And before that, we couldn't have considered that that could happen. That can happen. People can take our own planes, fly them into buildings, and destroy our buildings and lots of people. I didn't know that could happen, and now I know. Now I know that can happen. And I think the foolish virgins on the last day are thinking, it's real. It's real. I was faking it. I was acting as if this was never going to happen, and it just did. It just did. The wise virgins went in with Jesus to the wedding ceremony in the kingdom of God. And then, and then after they entered, the bridegroom shut the door forever. And I want you to focus on that word forever. That's a word we use too much. i love you forever. But forever is a real term. And it symbolizes in the last day, when the door is shut, it's shut for good forever. And it will never open again. Is that important? Is that an important detail of the story? That the door is shut Forever? Now, here we have sort of a, a really pathetic, sad scene. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. After he shut the door, they tried to go up and pound on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Lord, Lord, you're our Lord. We love you. We promise. But he answered to them, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Who are you? Why don't I recognize you? Where's your faith? Where's your love? Where's your devotion? Why don't I know you then? Why don't I understand who you are? Why don't I see any imprint of my holiness upon your life? Who are you? The foolish virgins attempt to plead with the bridegroom in order to find last-second mercy, but the bridegroom says he doesn't even know who they are. The door is shut, and they are forever left out of the kingdom of God. He doesn't recognize them. Their lack of faith, love, and devotion completely give them away, as false Christians. And then Jesus says to us in verse 13, Watch, therefore, everyone who's hearing this warning, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You don't know. I am coming back, but you don't know when. You don't know if it'll be today or tomorrow or in five years or in your lifetime or not, but I am coming back. Watch, therefore, And Jesus warns us, every one of us, to be ready at all times because we don't know the day that he's coming. We don't know the hour that he's coming. We don't want to be unprepared. Does anyone want to be unprepared when the Lord Jesus comes back? Absolutely not. And this symbolizes at the end, this will be a permanent and eternal consequence if we are left out. So this means nothing is more important than what we're teaching today. Nothing is more important. Now for the last few moments we have, I want to talk about what is Jesus teaching us based on this parable. What does this mean? Like, oh, we understand what the parable represents, but what is Jesus teaching us? And we got to move quickly through these, but number one thing he's teaching us is the kingdom of heaven should be the primary thing we think about. I mean that. The kingdom of heaven should be the primary thing we think about. We should, we should think about the kingdom of heaven more than work, more than making family memories, more than our chores and our errands, more than friendships, more than our physical health. Because, again, it's eternal. And it represents our relationship with God. The kingdom of heaven should drive every thought we have, every belief we have, every action we have. If not, we're more like the five foolish virgins who neglected to have oil. And the Lord wants us to live wisely on this earth. We are not permanent residents of earth. Is anyone here a permanent resident of earth? No, none of us are. We are here for a time. This Paul said it's like living in a tent here upon the earth. You're not here permanently. If we're in Christ, we are citizens of heaven. And we should live like that. So it means it's right and good for us to always be planning for our next life with God at our eternal home. And those who plan for the kingdom of God make choices on earth that represent their readiness to go with Jesus in the kingdom of God. And Colossians 3, 1 to 4 sticks in my, sticks in my mind where it's Paul says... Set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you think the wise the wise virgins were thinking about that? Do you think they were driven, their actions, their decisions on earth were driven by the fact that Christ was coming back? It was. They were. But the foolish virgins, that could not be said of. The second thing Jesus is teaching us Most people in our nation claim to have a relationship with Christ, but regardless of how low the bar is in our nation, and it is low, unfortunately, in order to be a Christian, you just need to go to church a few times, sing some songs, know some Bible passages, have a Jesus fish on your car or a cross around your neck, know Tim Tebow, like Tim Tebow, whatever it is. Our bar is low in this culture to be a Christian. But Jesus is teaching us that regardless of how low that bar is to be a Christian, the false Christians on the last day will be revealed for what they actually are. And if that message was spoken to me when I was in my mid-twenties, I would have been that person. I would have been a false Christian faking it. And Jesus says, listen, one day the masks are going to come off. All masks will be removed, and we'll actually see if you're wise or foolish. We'll actually see if you're a sheep or a goat. We'll actually see if you're true or false. That's the second thing he's teaching us. Thing number three, as we await for Christ to return, we have the somewhat difficult task of remaining patient and vigilant, even when we get drowsy and weary and things seem to linger on, because I'm going to be honest, that happens from time to time. Sometimes this life gets long and tedious and monotonous and wearisome, right? Doesn't it? And we have the somewhat difficult task of remaining vigilant, watchful for the coming of Christ. The Lord has told us time and again that he is coming soon and we must remind ourselves of this. This is what this is today. If you are a true Christian, if you are ready to meet the Lord, this is a reminder. Keep going. Keep watching. Keep remaining vigilant. Keep looking. Keep preparing yourself. Because all of us cannot afford to be unprepared when Jesus comes back. Can we? So we need to make every day a step in our preparation To meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the son of God. He has the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to the kingdom of God. And I want to make sure that when Jesus comes back, I'm with him and he's with me. Thing number four. When Jesus comes and he will, everything is going to change. And anything that isn't in Christ is going to come to a swift end. Do you know that? That the things that matter right now to us matter immensely, but are earthly things are one day not going to matter because they're earthly. And as soon as Jesus comes back, earthly doesn't matter anymore. It's all gone. It's all gone in a swift moment. All that will matter right then is where are we going? Who are we with? Who did I serve? Who did I worship? The time to prepare is now, not when that day comes. You remember the days of Noah? In the days of Noah, there was a warning. And that warning may have lingered for a hundred or so years as Noah built this ark. A flood is coming, a flood is coming, a flood is coming. And it said in the days of Noah, people were eating, drinking, giving themselves in marriage, acting as if every day would happen just like it had before. And one day a flood came of epic proportions. And there was an ark. There was an agent of salvation. But when the flood came, what happened to the ark door? It was shut. And it was shut permanently. And everyone who was inside the ark was safe from the flood. And everyone who was outside the ark door was destroyed in the flood. That's what we're talking about here. If we're waiting for that day to be prepared, we're too late. We're too late. That's the tragedy of delay. If this warning isn't enough for our souls to prepare, we only have ourselves to blame. Romans 13 says it this way. Wake up. If you're asleep, if you're slumbering, if you're acting as if this day is not going to come, wake up. Because our salvation is nearer to us now than it's ever been. We are no, we are so much closer today than we were yesterday. We have never been closer than we are right now to the second coming of Jesus. Number five. Sadly, there are some who seek to prepare for the other side at life's final breaths. And although the Lord can give mercy, to whomever he wants, even those souls at the final breaths of life. He's also telling us that's a foolish way to live. It's a foolish way to live to say, there's always tomorrow in the Christian life. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll buckle down someday. One of these days I'm really going to get my act together. Jesus says that's a foolish way to live. You don't know if tomorrow's going to be here. James taught us that. Your life is like a vapor. You don't know if you're going to be here. Today is the day to prepare if we truly expect Christ to come back and gather with him forever, everything we do on earth will be impacted by that truth. We have to prove it by looking forward and anticipating his second coming. Do you? Do you actually? Do you look forward to that day? Do you anticipate that day? Do you think about that day? Do you talk about that day? Do you pray, Lord, help me prepare for that day? None of us can claim to be heavenly minded while we're focused on earthly matters. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 that no one could serve two masters. Either we're following and obeying Jesus and prepared to meet him or we're following and serving something else and unprepared to meet him. There's only two camps. There's nobody in the middle. There's no one with a foot in each camp. And when Jesus comes back, he just rounds up and you're in there. No, you're either serving and following Jesus or you're serving and following something else. Number six, the kingdom of heaven has a gate. Is it an actual gate? I don't know. I haven't been there. But the kingdom of heaven has a gate, and right now, Jesus is the gate. And on the last day, Jesus is the gatekeeper. He's the one who says on the last day, whether you're in or you're out, if some neglect to enter in through Jesus now, the consequence is going to be on them. Jesus has every desire, and I want to emphasize that, every desire, and went to every length imaginable so that we might come and find eternal life with him. Do you know that? He went to the cross. That proves he went to every length imaginable. He wants every single one of us. But if we refuse or neglect to enter through the gate, enter through Jesus, while it's open, we can expect to find no mercy on the last day. Jesus shutting the door on the foolish virgins has everything to do with the lack of preparation from the virgins, not his lack of mercy. Because the gate lingered open for a long, long, long time. Long time. And when the door is finally shut, it has nothing to do with the lack of mercy on the Lord. It has everything to do with the virgin's lack of preparation. And number seven, the test God gives us to be prepared for heaven is by walking in faith instead of sight. And because none of us know when Christ is coming back, the only right response is to always be watching, to always be ready, to live in the ready. Because there's going to be a great reward for being prepared to meet Jesus. You go with Jesus into his kingdom, with him forever. But there's also going to be a great consequence for not being prepared. And the days of Noah, again, can teach us that. The consequence for not being in the ark when the flood came is destruction. Are you prepared? If you're prepared, you're safe. Are you unprepared? If you're unprepared, you're not safe. Jesus is here today. The gate is open today. Every single one of us can get in today, but I don't know about tomorrow. And the passage is teaching us that today is the day. So how do we prepare ourselves? we got to move quickly here. I have two passages I'm not really going to look at. I have five things that Scripture represents. If we can bump ahead a little bit, Judy, to the five things. Five things that we need to do in order to prepare ourselves. And these things are, just come from Scripture. Okay, thing number one. If you want to be prepared, okay, do these things. Make sure these things are true of you. Number one, repent of your sins and turn to Jesus. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus and then be baptized in his name. Because sin is the problem. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the Savior. And we need to turn from one one to the other. Sin is your problem. Sin is bad. The wages of sin is death. We need to turn from sin unto Jesus. And Jesus came to save you. Put your name there. He came to save you. His grace and mercy is for you today, sinner. For you. Believe it. Turn to him. That's what he wants. He wants to save you. He wants to bring you where he goes. He wants to love you for the rest of time. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus if you haven't yet. There may not be a tomorrow. Number two thing we need to do is fear God and hate sin. That will keep us where we need to go. If we fear God in the proper way, not in the paralyzing fear, but in the way that says, I'm going the way he's taught me. I am not going to take these things flippantly. I'm going to take these things seriously. And sin is my mortal enemy. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to fight it. And I'm going to beat it by the grace of God. Fear God and hate sin. Number three, stay faithful to Jesus every single day through love, devotion, and obedience. He's our Lord, right? We all say that. Jesus is our Lord. He's the Lord of the universe. Then we need to live like it. We need to act like it. We need to be and stay devoted to our Jesus. And we need to remember he is our life. Jesus said on the way, the truth, and the life, there is no life apart from Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And if you have Jesus, you have eternal life. So stay faithful to that life giver. Stay near that life giver. Number four, obey Christ's commandments like they're directions on a GPS to heaven. Because that's how I think about them. Jesus says, go this way. This is the right way. These are things you should be seeing along the path. Do these things. This is how I want you to get there. So obey Christ's commandments like they're directions, like they're a map he gave you to go the right way because that's what they are. Obey them, learn them, listen to them, obey them, and you're going the right way. If you don't, you don't know if you're going the right way. And you'll have to find out on the last day. But right now you can gauge it. Am I looking and learning his commandments and I'm putting them into practice? If you are, you're going the right way. Find confidence and courage from that. And number five, anticipate the coming of the day of the Lord. I mean, actually anticipate it. Actually look forward to it. Actually thank the Lord for it. Actually talk about it with your peers and your Christian friends and family members, and ask this question constantly. Does this, whatever, whatever you're doing with your time, does this help me and others prepare for the kingdom of God? On the last day, that's all that will matter. Do you know that? On the last day, that's the only question we will look back and go, I should have asked that about everything. Everything should have been asked in light of this question. Did it help me and others prepare for the kingdom of God? Because now it's here. And now it's here forever. So how can we be different from now on in our preparation for Christ's return? I think all of those five things boil down to one simple thing. See the value of Jesus. See the value of Jesus. He is your Savior. He is your only Savior. He came to die for you and me. See the value of Jesus. Look around you guys. Look around you today. Is anything on earth worth your time, your devotion, your allegiance, your soul, your love? Is anything on earth worth that? Unless it can get you through the gate of God's kingdom, the answer is absolutely no. But Jesus can, and Jesus will. He is the gate. He is the gatekeeper. He is the key. And he is the treasure inside the door. He's worth it all. He's worth it all. I asked you at the beginning, where were you on September 11th? We're going to bump ahead here a little bit, Judy. I asked you where you were on September 11th, 2001. It's a day that we're going to remember for the rest of our lives. Can I read one more passage of scripture before we close here today? Do you remember the days of Noah? I told you that there was a flood coming. There was a warning that a flood was gonna come. Well, 2 Peter says there's another storm coming. Last time it was a flood, but this time it's gonna be a little bit different. I want you to listen to this passage from 2 Peter 3. Peter says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior. Through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned, burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he says in verse 11, Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the days of Noah, it was a flood coming. There's a flood coming. Get inside the ark. And now Peter's telling us it's fire. There's fire coming to the earth. You don't want to be a citizen of earth when that fire comes. You want to be a citizen of heaven. Because if you're a citizen of heaven, you won't be there when the fire comes. Remember 9 11. You wanted to be out of there. You wanted to tell other people to get out of there. There is a warning coming for us and it's for all of us today that when the fire comes, we want to not be on this earth any longer. So the application for all of us today are very simple. Are you prepared to meet Jesus today? If you are, and I'm glad that you are, I'm thrilled that you are, what needs to continue or increase so that you could be further prepared to meet Jesus? Because all of us can be further prepared, and I mean myself included, We can all be further prepared. So are you prepared to meet Jesus today? Those five things we looked at, are they true about you? Number two, if you're not prepared to meet Jesus, what do you need to do before the day's end? See, the tragedy of delay will happen for many, sadly. It will. But it doesn't have to happen to you. You can heed the warning. You can be one of those who listen to and put into preparation Exactly what Jesus said today. And the last thing I'll say is this, is Jesus is available for your soul today. He is. Jesus is available for your soul today. And several things in Scripture tell us what to do based on this fact. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Abide in Him, John 15. Eat of Him, John 6. Obey Him. Follow Him. Love Him look for his second coming and warn those you love Jesus wants to save many many and the whole point of the story is to save us did you know that the reason this exists in the scripture is not to depress you but to save you for you to say i will take this warning seriously i will listen and i will prepare myself to meet my Jesus. May it never be said that we were like the foolish virgins who had no oil for our lamps and weren't ready to meet our Lord Jesus. The tragedy of delay would haunt us forever. If needed, let's all make today the first day of our eternal preparation because Jesus is worthy to have his bride prepared to meet him at the marriage ceremony. Can we pray? Father, thank you for this message. It's a hard message. It's a message that isn't necessarily full of fluffy language, but Father, it's here for us. It's here for our benefit. And if we will listen to it, Father, we can prepare ourselves. And when you come back, Father, we will have confidence that you are ours and we are yours. I want I want that for every single person in this room and in this church, Father. But only you can awaken the soul. I ask that you would. If there are some who are asleep, if there are some who don't have any oil, if there are some who are faking it, Father, awaken those people today to their need of Jesus. And if some of us are prepared but there's something further we need to do and press that upon us as well. Either way, Father, help us to see the value of Jesus today, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, and to wait for him because he is returning soon. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.